Hello and welcome to Eccentric Earth, the podcast where I, your host Amy Walker, delve into stories from across history with a guest who has no idea what the topic's going to be. And joining me this week is Holly Rose. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm pretty good, thank you. Thank you for having me back as well. No, it's it's. I'm I'm glad to have you back. I feel like it's been too long since you've been on. I've been eager to have you come on again. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> no, I've been off in the wilds of, oh, journalism work. It takes over your life, I think. Yeah, well, you've been very busy, you know, launching a magazine and promoting and preparing yeah. the next issue. It's, yeah, you've been a very busy beaver. <laughs> I have. Uh, I think since the last one, we probably launched volume one and volume two, didn't we? Uh, yeah yeah it's been big big times for you it's been fun seeing it all on the internet and all unfolding and how well it's going (laughs) the fact that we managed to get two volumes out in such a small space of time does kind of i don't know how we did it but it's (laughs) fine you know when you look back on something and go how on earth did we do that Uh, yeah i think if it's working don't question it just just keep going (laughs) exactly we'll just just keep going just gonna keep we're gonna keep doing this uh that's fine yeah Uh, don't question it until it goes wrong exactly it's uh it's when you have uh, an editor come to you and go can you rewrite this entire section because what you've done is uh libel you go oh right yeah sorry (laughs) uh yeah i've had that happen on a few articles alleged in front of everything (laughs) this is alleged yeah oh dear that's why I talk about dead people if possible, because it's so you, you can't libel the dead. So exactly, <laughs> it's problem with a lot of my journalism because I do a lot of stuff on pop pop culture and geek culture, is that so much of it gets wrapped up in things like Twitter and mm. social media and all this sort of stuff. You never know what has been proved or what's happened, and definitely like there is definitely recorded evidence of certain things, or what people have just said. Uh, and it's just like recounted, so it's like oh, trying to kind of unmerge the two things is very tricky. Uh, I I would like to talk about dead people. They can't see you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Although although it's I, I kind of do have some of those same issues when you have two very reliable sources telling you two completely different versions of events, and then you've got to go try and dig in historical records. At least you know if someone's alive, you can turn around. And be like, okay, what actually happened? I've just, I'm stuck in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, that's the problem. I'm at the moment, uh, sort of just started researching a piece where pretty much everything in it is like, so and so said this, so and so said this, this is my recount of what happened, all this sort of stuff. And there is very little proof other than people's word. Mm. Because then, of course, other people are like, oh, no, that didn't happen. Oh, that doesn't happen, or whatever. Um, so it's like, what side of the story do you take and in almost all cases i will take this because it's about sexual assault essentially or sexism in the workplace uh i will always take the the side of the person 
claiming there was sexual assault or there was uh, sexual misconduct or anything like that, you know, because mm. I'm like, what well, you have to gain for saying this? Nothing, nothing. You have nothing to gain. Um, but at the same time, you still have to be like, this was alleged. Uh, you know, yeah. I can't just be like, I take her word for it. Yeah, no, that's a difficult one. I, I talked about that with one of my guests when I covered um, Fatty Arbuckle. Mm. And it was like, you, you oh, it's so hard because it is innocent till proven guilty, but also you have to come into it from a point of you believe the allegations. Exactly. And you can't believe the allegations and presume someone's innocent at the same time. It's a really tough It is really tough. Kind of it. conundrum. I, as a journalist, especially as a journalist who I, I would like to say that I have some scruples about what I report. I don't, and, you know, like I said, I work predominantly in pop culture and geek culture. So a lot of the time, this stuff isn't this stuff doesn't come up because you know you can talk about a game you're reviewing or uh, other things so it's a little less murky most of the time but with these things mm. it's like oh this is tricky this is tricky um and that's super fun which sounds weird it because obviously it's not but it's quite a nice thing to be uh, not nice interesting i think is the right word interesting thing to be learning um yeah. about because i didn't study journalism at university despite being on a broadcast writing uh, thing I looked more on TV and radio and sort of writing and producing those sorts of things rather than straight journalism. So this is now kind of a new string to my bow, as it were, which is nice. Really nice. Good. When you kind of ended up in a place you weren't expecting. Uh, <laughs> I was not expecting to be here, so that's fine. But I like it. Good. I'm trying to make this sound better and less traumatic <laughs> than it was today, having to go through post over post after post of women going, oh, this happened to me in the workplace. And we'd be like, oh... Oh, that's awful. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it's better to talk about it. We are we live in a post-MeToo world, so as they would say in the papers. Sorry, I, I don't think that's a good way of talking about it, really. But that's how I think everyone's phrasing it now. Anyway, I've um, gone off on one about journalism, and I shouldn't have. <laughs> no, it's, it's all fine. Do you feel there's... free to cut all of that out? <laughs> <laughs> there's very little I, I cut out, really. Good, good. It's just as if I've made a, you know, a, a muppet of myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't worry. If I if I think cutting something out will make you sound better, I'll do that for you. But nice. if you're making good points, I'll keep it. <laughs> oh, good. That's nice. Well, shall we uh, delve into the story I've got for you? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I'm excited. It's a bit different from Spring Hill Jack. Yeah. It's not the one I originally picked out for you. I did pick one out, which... I thought it was really cool. And then I stumbled across this person and that first person got pushed to the side because I was like, I need to learn about this person. They're amazing. That's how all and research I think works. You'll sure. get a big dig out of this topic because I've never heard of this person before, but they are so freaking cool. Awesome. Hey, it's Hansi from the Squeak Project. And we're having our first SqueakCon on Saturday, December 1st at the Lyric Hall in New Haven, Connecticut. We're going to be celebrating women and fandom with performances by Tea Time for Mad Girls, Cat Smith, a film festival, cosplay guests, vendors, and then we're wrapping up the evening with a meetup and nerd karaoke at the bar. Get your tickets at filmfreeway.com forward slash squeakon. Mary Edwards Walker was born in the town of Oswego in New York on November 26, 1832. She was the daughter of Alva and Vesta Walker. The youngest of seven children, she had five sisters named Aurora, Luna, Vesta, and Cynthia, and one brother, Alva Jr. 
Alva and Vesta raised both their son and their daughters in a progressive manner that was revolutionary for the time. Whilst they were devoted Methodist Christians, the Walkers were three thinkers who raised their children to question the regulations and restrictions of various denominations. The Walker parents also demonstrated non-traditional gender roles in their children regarding sharing work around the farm. Vesta often participated in heavy manual labour, while Alva, who was a doctor in town, took part in general household chores. Mary worked on her family farm as a child and didn't wear women's clothing during farm labour because she considered it too restricting. Her mother reinforced her views that corsets and tight lacings were unhealthy, and her parents were also adamantly opposed to slavery and refused to use slaves on their farm, preferring to do the work themselves. The Walkers were determined that their daughters be as well educated as their son, and as such, when they were unable to send their daughters to elementary school, they founded the first free schoolhouse in Oswego in the late 1830s so that the children of all genders in the town could receive the same education. These sound like very interesting people, if nothing else. Like, this is a family. Yeah, uh... there's not many people today who take these kind of views when it comes to raising their kids. So for 1830, they're pretty cool, I think. I think so. (laughs) It's definitely a a forward-thinking group of people. Mm. After finishing primary school, Mary and two of her older sisters attended Fally Seminary in Fulton in New York. Fally was not only an institution of higher learning, but a place that emphasised modern social reform in gender roles, education and hygiene. Its ideologies and practices further cemented Mary's determination to defy traditional feminine standards on a principle of injustice. From an early age... Oh, sorry. No, it's okay. I was just making a noise of interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, she's not your average young woman of the 1830s. No, definitely not. (laughs) From an early age, she expressed an interest in medicine, one that is believed to originate from looking through her father's medical texts on anatomy and physiology in her spare time. Mary eventually decided that she wanted to pursue medicine as a career and become a doctor. After finishing her education, she taught at a school in Minito, New York, where she eventually earned enough money to pay her way through Syracuse Medical College, where, as the only woman in a class, she graduated with honours as a medical doctor in 1855. She was one of the first women in America to become a medical doctor. That's fascinating. Yeah. That's very, very rare, isn't it? So she is literally the first woman in America to become a doctor rather than any sort of sort of uh, nurse or sister or anything on a ward. That's yeah, and did you say eighteen fifty? Eighteen fifty-five. Wow, yeah. that's yeah. She was determined she didn't want to be a nurse or anything like that. She was like, no, I'm going to be a doctor. That's amazing. Like honestly, amazing. Good honor. Yeah. On November sixteenth, eighteen fifty-five, shortly before her twenty-third birthday she married a fellow medical student named Albert Miller. During the wedding ceremony, Mary wore a suit with a top hat and refused to include the word obey in her vows. What an excellent person. Definitely my sort of person. I think you've chosen exactly. (laughs) Oh, yes. Yeah, the more I started hearing about her, I was like, oh, she's a badass and Ollie's going to love the reasons why she's a badass. (laughs) She is a badass. I'm definitely on board with this. You know, oh, it's excellent. I'm also annoyed that I have started sneezing for no reason. (laughs) It's okay, I can mute the sneezes. (laughs) Okay, good. After the marriage, she also kept her own surname. Together, Mary and Albert set up a joint medical practice in Rome, New York. The practice was not a huge success, however, as female physicians were generally not trusted or respected. 
A few years later, the two of them divorced due to Albert having an affair. In 1860, Mary briefly attended Bowen College Institute, which later became Lennox College, in Hopkinton, Iowa, but was soon suspended after joining the Debating Society, which had previously been all-male after refusing to resign from the, from the society. I'm not I, sure I, that sentence structure no, is correct. No, I was just um, trying to work it out and be like, wait. <laughs> yeah, um, that's me writing badly. Um, yeah, so there was a debating society in this college. Yes. And because no woman had ever joined it before, they hadn't put any rules in place to say that women couldn't so because could. <laughs> they just assumed, well, no woman would, so why do we have to put it in? And then she did, and they were like, whoa, no, you have to, you have to quit. She refused, so they just got her thrown out of the college. <laughs> wow. Men are so fragile. Yeah, yeah. Gosh. So we, we can't debate a woman. Just just get her out kind of reaction. <laughs> they didn't even think to try and just see what would happen. Gosh. Nope. You'd think they'd want to just debate her into a corner so she quits, but... Yeah. No. <laughs> I'm not sure which is worse, if I'm honest. Um... But good I think on her that way would have been better because I don't think she'd have let herself get backed into a corner like that. No, At least I don't think so. She, I don't think this she way would have. she comes out with her head held up high and is like, well, I guess you were too much of a pussy to debate me. <laughs> Got me thrown out. <laughs> but, you know, come on. I'm better than that. But you can you can definitely. Oh, I. She sounds like an excellent human. I love the idea of her just going, oh, that's a loophole. Having yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, was you don't want women, but you haven't said I can't join, so I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm just gonna just gonna turn up. <laughs> Excellent. During this period, she also attracted negative attention due to the way she dressed. Inspired by her parents' standard of dressing, Mary was infamous for contesting traditional female wardrobe. She strongly opposed women's long skirts with numerous petticoats, not only for the discomfort and their inability for the wearer's mobility but for their collection and spread of dirt and dust. In 1861, she often wore trousers with suspenders under a knee-length dress with a tight waist and full skirt. Really? Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering how that affords more movement. I mean, I can kind of see it, but the, I would have just ditched the skirt, I think. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think it, if she did, she would have got more hassle for it. But I guess it's like, at first glance, you just assume she's got a skirt on, but actually she's yeah. like... Well, these are just trousers with a bit of fabric in front of them, so I'm winning. The, you know, the first ever collapse, essentially. Uh, <laughs> it's definitely a statement. Her family encouraged her, but her clothing choices were often met with criticism and even outright hostility. Once, while a school teacher, she was assaulted on her way home by a neighbouring farmer and a group of boys who chased her and attacked her with eggs and other missiles. Female colleagues in medical people. school... Oh, they're awful. Yeah. Yeah, they are. It's like, women in trousers, chase it. Yeah, like, oh, no, she looks different. The, the world is... <laughs> you know, and the thing is, that still happens, you know. Oh, yeah. You still get comments like, you know, if you're looking in any way not feminine, about, oh, I really look like a boy and all this sort of stuff. It's like, or I just look like me. And also, you know, don't put gender stereotypes on me. Leave. Um <laughs> Or if you look too overtly feminine, the assumption is you are a girl, you are female, rather than thinking, maybe not, maybe this person could not identify like that, but they like this aesthetic. Yep. Oh, it's ridiculous. Makes me cross. During medical 
school, female colleagues would criticise her clothing choices and patients often gawked at her and teased her. But she didn't let that get her down. Despite having kept a private practice for many years, when the American Civil War began, Mary closed her practice in order to volunteer as a surgeon for the army. Unfortunately, she was rejected by the army because she was a woman and was offered the role as a nurse instead. Oh, no, <laughs> they did not. That's not them. And of course, she declined this position. Instead, she chose to volunteer as a surgeon for the Union Army as a civilian instead. So again, she loopholed it. Yeah. They, they won't have a female doctor in the army. Fine, she's a civilian doctor for the army. She seems to be not only an excellent human, but incredibly intelligent. I mean, she must have been yeah. to get her medical degree and everything in the first place. She must have had to have done twice as much, if not more, than any of her male uh, oh, God, uh, yeah. counterparts. And to be taken seriously in any way, she must have had to have been two, three, four steps ahead of everybody else. So, you know, she must have been so intelligent. And oh, yeah. you can see that in how she takes on all of these problems that she comes up across. And the fact that she doesn't just go, oh, for fuck's sake, I'm too tired. You know, she keeps going. Yeah, she she's not backing down ever, I don't think. I think it's, it's really, and as much as it must have been very hard for her, you kind of go, well, these are the people who made it easier for us. And yes, it's not easy now. Mm -hmm. I would never claim to say that life is for, you know, non-conforming gender humans uh, is easy. But we don't have to face, or at least we in the West, luckily, or I'm not even going to say the West, I'm going to say Britain, I don't think, yeah. have to face this same sort of discrimination. It still happens in other places, obviously. We hear about it all the time. But, you know, people don't run down the street and throw eggs at you just because you're wearing trousers or whatever. <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, things have changed. Things have progressed in some way, I think. And yeah. it's because of people like her. Definitely. So during this period, she served at the First Battle of Bull Run on the 21st of July, 1861, and at the Patent Office Hospital in Washington, D.C. Uh, Dr. J.N. Green of the Patent Office Hospital accepted Mary out of necessity because his former assistant had died and he needed a replacement. He wrote a letter of recommendation for her to take to the Surgeon General Finley, in which he stated that he believed Mary was a qualified physician and requested that she be given the position of Assistant Surgeon. Finley and Assistant Surgeon General R.C. Wood denied this request. Because... What bastards. Woman... Woman. Oh, how <laughs> dare they? How, what? Women, but their poor little pretty minds. How will they ever be? Oh. <laughs> Don't worry, things get better, sort of. Okay. <laughs> I'll put my rage away for a little bit. Mary remained at the hospital for two months, during which time she gained the admiration of Dr. Green for her skills as a physician, despite her gender, dress, and non-regulation medical degree. So. Good. She's proving them wrong by doing it yeah. and gaining their respect as well, more importantly. Good. That's it, girl. You get them. You show them. <laughs> she also worked as an unpaid field surgeon near the Union front lines, including at the Battle of Fredericksburg and in Chattanooga after the Battle of Chattanooga. One of my favourite words, Chattanooga. <laughs> I don't know why. I just love it. It just sounds great in your mouth. I don't think I even know what it actually means. I'm assuming it's Native American First Nation. First Nation. Yeah, I think it sounds more like a First Nation word than... Yeah, it does, doesn't it? ...than so, the American 
Yeah, sometimes yeah. you end up with the weird kind of things like the Dutch stuff sounding mm. a bit. Not to say that, you know, I don't know, but I'm sure someone no, will tell us. it could us. have been from the Dutch time, yeah. I'm going to assume, though, that it's it's First Nation. It sounds like it, it is. Yeah. I think it's a safe assumption. I'm sure if we've got it wrong, I'll hear about it in the comments on YouTube. <laughs> oh, exactly. That's, that's where they tell you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> with wonderfully colourful language, I'm sure. <laughs> As a suffragist, she was happy to see women serving as soldiers and alerted the press to the case of Frances Hook in Ward 2 of the Chattanooga Hospital, a woman who served in the Union forces disguised as a man. Which I will probably do an episode on them at some point because. Yeah, that's cool. A cool. That's quite cool. There's a, a friend of mine is uh, a, a sort of obsessed with military history. Um, it's what their degree and stuff's on and everything like that. And I have walked into the living room and it's a library of military history books. It's very impressive. Um, and I've been very well informed that there were lots and lots of women who served in armies over the centuries. And in almost all cases, uh, their superiors had no idea because yep. they'd only ever seen women dressed up, basically. Uh, if a woman wasn't wearing women's clothes, they, they had no idea what she looked like. Uh, yeah. Especially, like, I'm not saying, like, naked. They probably had seen their wives and stuff and all this sort of thing. But... Uh, in a kind of, if she, if a woman was in the army dressed as a boy or dressed as a man or however, they probably had absolutely no idea. <laughs> well, especially have... as that wouldn't have crossed their mind as even a possibility. Exactly. So It's like when think... people complain about Mulan, the Disney exactly. film. It's like, well, all she does is put her hair up. It's like, yeah, but they're also not thinking a woman's going to walk into the middle of the army and, and train with her. So, yeah, exactly. of course it worked. <laughs> Exactly. They're just not looking for it, and so they're not seeing it. It's, yeah. I think something people forget that when you're, if you're not expecting to see somebody in a place, in almost all cases, you won't. You know, it won't be like you'll be there going, "Oh, that's so and so." It's more likely that you'll go, you'll go, "Oh, that person really looks like whoever." You know, mm. in these cases of seeing like people when they see a celebrity at Comic Con on something, and go, "Oh, you really look like Eddie Redmayne or whatever," and actually is Eddie Redmayne <laughs> because they're not <laughs> expecting to see him. Their brain goes, oh, it can't be that person. Mm. Um, less so now, I think, because of social media. But at the time when people didn't have communication like that or um, the same sort of information and knowledge that we have as a society now, where a lot of people were quite ignorant of the opposite sex, opposite other sexes, sorry. Uh, and uh, gosh, even I have gendered language stuck <laughs> in me. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Society, hmm. Shake my fist at you. Anyway, uh, it, you know, if people weren't expecting to, like you said, if they weren't expecting to see a woman, they didn't see a woman, mm. you know, and most women would have just been like baggy shirt, big coat, sorted, because uh, those uniforms are very ill-fitting on most soldiers because they weren't tailored to them in the same way. They were for officers and stuff, obviously, but, you you know, you lower down the ranks and stuff, it probably would have just been a sort of generic size, though they did do more of their own stuff to fit it, but, you know. It's easy to hide in a big wool coat and a baggy shirt. Yeah. Someone's again going to tell me I'm wrong about military uniforms. <laughs> um, I'm sorry if I'm wrong. Don't worry, but, guys. You know, I will forward all the comments on. So that... <laughs> I'm like, thank you. That's really what I want. <laughs> uh, to be fair, I'm pretty sure my friend who is, uh, is a military historian will shout at me about this. Uh, but they're like, I'm really sorry. 
didn't know. take you it's into the library thing. and be like, right, read this one, then this yeah. one, then I'm going to shout well, at you. <laughs> because I know that obviously from, I know about historical clothing of the time that everyone kind of, pe- well, women, peace made shirts and dresses and things like that. But I've never known, and waistcoats and things, but I don't know that much about the military thing. And I kind of, part of me is like, would they have made their own? Maybe. Uh, and part of me is like, I doubt it. <laughs> they probably wouldn't have the skills to do that. So I don't know. Or if it was just you got flung a thing and hopefully it'd fit you. And I, I just watched a lot of Sharp. So <laughs> <laughs> they all look very nice and, and dapper. So, yeah. Mm. I would like to know if somebody does know and could tell me that would be ace. Uh, <laughs> Mary was the first female surgeon in the Union Army. And she wore men's clothing during her work, claiming it to be easier for high demands of work. So again, I wonder how many people didn't even twig that she was a woman. Yeah. <laughs> so in 1862, Mary went to Forest Hall Prison in Georgetown, but felt her services were not especially needed. So she returned to New York. She earned a second medical degree from Hygiene Therapeutic College. And in September 1862, she wrote to the War Department requesting employment as a spy. Her proposal was, of course, declined. After the Battle of Fredericksburg, Mary worked as a field surgeon near the front lines of the Union Army, treating soldiers in a tent hospital. In September 1863, she was employed as a contract acting assisting surgeon, civilian, by the Army of the Cumberland, becoming the first female surgeon employed in the US Army surgery. Good honour. She was later appointed Assistant Surgeon of the 52nd Ohio Infantry. During her service, she frequently crossed battle lines and treated civilians. She made her own military uniform, modifying the standard male uniform, and wore two pistols around her waist at all times. Wow, she sounds like such a badass, right? I know! Damn! (laughs) I just like the idea, I'm here to treat you, but I will shoot you if you mess with me. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you can imagine that walking into your tent, like, oh, 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 no, oh, I, uh, um, I will sit over here and be very good. <laughs> it would be like, don't want to meet you down a dark alley. I'm confused by what I'm seeing, and my instinct is to go, woman, no, but she's got guns, so I'll just, I'll just be good. <laughs> <laughs> On April 10th, 1864, Mary was captured by Confederate troops and arrested as a spy just after she finished helping a Confederate doctor perform an amputation on a wounded soldier. She was sent to the prisoner of war camp Castle Thunder in Richmond, Virginia, and remained there until August 1864, when she was released as part of a prisoner exchange. While she was in prison, she refused to wear the clothes provided her, which were said to be more becoming of her sex. So basically, she refused to wear women's clothing in prison. Boo. Don't make her do that. She's awesome. <laughs> Mary was exchanged for a Confederate surgeon from Tennessee on August 12th. After this, she went on to serve as a supervisor of a female prison in Louisville, Kentucky, and as the head of an orphanage in Tennessee. Mary was paid $766.16 for her wartime service. That doesn't sound like very much, but I'm sure it was more at the time. Yeah, I am going to do a very quick little conversion, see what that is. I bet it was less than the men. Oh, definitely. (laughs) it's close to 45 grand wow that's a lot yeah that's that's good that's if that conversion chart is correct 
But uh, yeah, that's pretty good. I suppose she wouldn't have been a rank and file soldier. She's a specialist. She's a surgeon going behind enemy lines and stuff. You know, that they probably would have given her a fairly decent wage for that. Yeah. And it was across quite a few years. So, so after the war, Mary was awarded a disability pension for partial muscular atrophy suffered while she was imprisoned by the enemy. She was given $8.50 a month beginning in June 1865. But in 1899, the amount was raised to $20 a month. The amount was, however, still less than many war widows' pensions. Well, that's not bad, I guess. I mean, it's one of these things where you're like, is that the least worst option? Uh... (laughs) At least they're giving us something, which is more than some people got at the time. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that she got anything, considering how badly she was clearly being treated by the establishment and, you know, where she was working and stuff and the, the fact you know, all the things she was coming up against. It's not by any means perfect and honestly it is shockingly bad considering what she was doing. Um, but they didn't just go, well, sod off then, you know, which, uh, yeah. I'm not sure, and this is the thing, I'm not sure if it's good or bad, but I think it's it's something rather than nothing and almost in the period that almost seems to be a victory for her that mm. she was respected enough as uh, despite being a woman for them to do more and it's not as much as she deserved by any stretch of the imagination but I think it speaks a volume of her credibility and her personality and who she was that she commanded some some respect in in that field does that make sense yeah no yeah and you know like I said it's not by any means perfect and she deserved so much more than she got in that situation but they didn't just go ah sod off (laughs) (laughs) which they easily could have done you know considering how others have treated her up to this point well she did feel like she deserved a little something more so after the war she saw a retroactive commission to validate her military service Uh, president johnson directed secretary of war edwin stanton to study the legality of this issue and solicited an opinion from the army judge advocate general who determined that there was no president no precedent for commissioning a female, but admitted that a commendatory acknowledgement could be issued in lieu of the commission. So it's basically saying she can't be a military officer, but you can give her an award. Yeah. So on November 11th, 1865, President Andrew Johnson signed a bill to give Mary Edwards Walker the Congressional Medal of Honour. Wow. Making her the only woman in history to ever receive it. My God, that's actually, I mean, I'm not American, obviously. I sound like this. Uh, <laughs> um, that's huge. Yeah. Like, uh, you know what? I think I would take that over being any sort of officer or anything. I'd be like, yeah, give me my shiny medal. Yeah. 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 But what I feel a bit sorry for her is, and not for her particularly, but I can imagine when she got that award, there was some part of her going, I am paving the way for other women to also be in this place. And the fact that she's still the only woman, yep. what? 150-ish years down the line to have um, probably done some terrible maths there. Um, no, it's, it's about 160, about right. 150, 160, so that's ballpark. Yes. <laughs> oh, I feel smart now. Good. Um, 150-ish, like I said, years down the line, it would. isn't it a shame that it's still just her? Yeah. Who's got it? You, you can literally go on to Google and search female Medal of Honor winners list and it just comes up with her. There is no list. There is no nothing. It's just her name comes up. 
I, f- I feel like that is that makes me feel quite sad that she this this person who is incredible honestly incredible and she did so much and got this amazing award and who probably stood there and thought at some point this is I am making a difference and that hasn't happened yet you know or mm. it feels like we're still we still have so much of these old ideas stuck in us as a society that uh, entrenched entrenched is a good word isn't it um that she's it, it almost feels like she should have had a legacy to that and she doesn't and i hope that whoever the second female to get this medal is knows who she is and knows about her story mm. which sounds ridiculous but you kind of feel like that there, there's a there should be a link there should be you know it's a very high honor i like i said i'm not american but even i go wow that's a big thing isn't it? Uh, yeah <laughs> And I would hope that, firstly, that another woman, many more women, get this this honour as well, and uh, that they they are her legacy in some way. It's a shame. I think it's a massive shame. That being said, you know, kind of hope we don't have more war. That'd be great too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think it's a bit of a, a not brilliant thing. In 1916, the US Congress created a Pension Act for Medal of Honour recipients, and in doing so created separate Army and Navy Medal of Honor roles. The Army was directed to review eligibility of prior recipients in a separate bill, not related to the pension role, but which had been requested by the Army in order to retroactively police undesi- undesirable re- awards. So, the undesirable Say awards... What? So Don't, there don't worry. Oh, okay, Think good. It's not going to be all bad. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, are they going to call her undesirable? Am I going to have to come and snap a bitch? Like, oh my god. So the undesirability awards resulted from a lack of regulations on the medal. Uh, The army had published no regulations until 1897, and the law had very few requirements, meaning that recipients could earn a medal for virtually any reason, resulting in what they decided were 900 awards for enlisted extensions not in combat. So... In 1917, they struck 911 names from the Medal of Honor roll, which included Mary. No. Also, incidentally, Buffalo Bill. What? <laughs> I mean, I don't know that much about him. Was he, I, I'm assuming at some point someone will tell me that he was a terrible human being, much like any famous person from history. But uh... but yeah, he, he got a Medal of Honor as well, and that got taken away. That's a horrible thing to do. What? Yeah. In Mary's case... Her medal was taken away because she was a civilian contract surgeon and was not a commissioned officer. Is that code for because she's a girl? Uh. Yes. Um, It has been brought up that the Medal of Honor board uh, most likely discriminated against Mary because it declined to revoke the medal of at least two other contract surgeons who were equally ineligible. (sighs) Can you guess why those two didn't have it taken away, though? I think I can. Yeah. Is it because they they was blokes? It is, yeah. Is it because they were white blokes? It is. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. Shocking. Um, however, Mary's great-grandniece, Anne Walker, fought for years to have the medal restored. And on the 11th of June, 1977, President Jimmy Carter reinstated Mary's medal, citing her distinguished gallantry, self-sacrifice, patriotism, dedication and unflinching loyalty to her country despite the apparent discrimination because of her sex excellent what an excellent thing to happen 
shame yeah. it was posthumous. I yes. assume it was posthumous. <laughs> yeah, she didn't live to 1977. Yeah, I was thinking, like, that'd be real impressive. Just like, you know, uh, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that is too long, isn't it? That's like a hundred and something. Uh, but good. That's uh, yeah. it's something. But during her lifetime, uh, before it got you know, struck off the records, Mary felt that she had been awarded the Medal of Honour because she had gone into enemy territory to care for suffering inhabitants. And she, to quote, when no man had the courage to do so, she refused to give the medal back despite it becoming a crime to wear an unearned medal. And she (laughs) wore it from the day she got it until the day she died. Badass. You know what? She, I feel like she has like Eowyn vibes about her, like turning up like, I am no man. <laughs> Got pistols. Like <laughs> that's my entire image of her in my head now. Definitely okay with that as well. After the Civil War, Mary became a writer and lecturer, supporting issues such as healthcare, temperance, women's rights, and dress reform for women. She was frequently arrested for wearing men's clothing and for impersonating a man or otherwise disrupting the peace usually because her clothing drew crowds. Oh, the fragility of it all, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) And the fact that she was wearing the Medal of Honour as well, that must have really blown their minds. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just pitching her, and I'm assuming she must be reasonably old by this point. Probably not, like, ancient or anything, Uh, but not not in her 20s or anything, is she? Mid-40s. Yeah, that sounds awful. Reasonably old. I meant, like, not (laughs) my age. Uh, Anything older I assume than everyone old. older than 30 is very old. Um, oh, God. Um, yeah, so it's sort of, you know, a woman in her mid-40s walking along with a Medal of Honor pinned on her chest, wearing trousers. Excellent. It's an excellent image I have. Sort of, you know, Kate Blanchett in Ocean's 8 kind of image. I really feel like you need to get someone to cosplay as her for your magazine. I do. I do. Like, I want the like, old school, I... gents clothing, top hat, medal of honor. Me, I'll oh, do I'd it. Look badass. Do it. <laughs> stuff, it's fine. Uh, to be fair, all my stuff is twenties. It's too late, but still. Maybe I should go and find some historical reenactment guys. Yeah. Do it. Oh. Okay. In 1870, whilst visiting New Orleans, Mary was arrested and mocked by men because she was dressed in what was seen as men's clothing. The arresting officer Mulhaney twisted her arm and asked her if she had ever had sex with a man. Uncalled for. Yep. Real douchey thing to do. That's horrible. What a horrible thing to do. She would often reply to criticisms of what she was wearing as, I don't wear men's clothes, I wear my own clothes. Yes! Which Good on I, I love her for that. Yeah, and I mean, I think, <laughs> I'm not sure if Eddie Izzard knew this, but he's definitely said the same thing about... Yeah. That. So I don't know whether he knew of her saying it or if other people have said what she said and all this sort of stuff. But definitely, that is very much the kind of the battle cry, I think, mm-hmm. of uh, the nonconformist when it yeah. comes to gender. And uh, it's, it's when I read that, I was just like, that's yeah, like that's what Eddie had said is like, I, yeah, I, she for she's, she's got to be like one of the first, if not the first person to come out with that, surely. I would imagine so, definitely. I would put Which, her in that kind of... It's just so awesome if it's right. Oh. Yeah, and so bold in the period as well, because I'm guessing we're sort of 1860s, yeah. 1870s now. 
to be yeah, talking in that yeah. way. Yeah, talking in that way about clothing and about gender. And because she is talking about gender rather than sex, whether she knew it or not, I think at this point, because she's talking about personal self-expression and identity, which is not the same thing as biological sex, I think. I wouldn't, I, I feel like she probably, if she lived now, she probably wouldn't class herself as a trans man. I think she'd probably still class herself as a nonconformist mm. in gender. But then I can't speak for her. She's dead. I'm just kind of, from what you've told me, I'm kind of thinking about it. Um, yeah. Definitely no, I, a maverick. I, oh, yeah. Definitely. one, of, And also one of my favourite words, terms to use about gender. Gender mavericks. Excellent. <laughs> That's like one of my favourite things ever. Did you know they have a pride flag? There's a, a pride flag for gender, for well, it's called mavericks. I'm not sure if it's specifically just gender or if it's oh. uh, sexuality as well. But very interesting. I did not know. And I'll tell my girlfriend she'll... I'm sure she'll get it because she's trying to get one of every flag and yeah, the I've house got... is turning into like, it looks like a circus tent because it's just multicoloured fabric on all the walls. <laughs> wow. Maybe she should make like a quilt or something from them so it's less oh, that, everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, I got a book. Uh, well, my friend got a book at Pride this year that had like all the different flags they could find in it that people mm. were using. Um there are a lot more than I realised, and also more yeah. terms than I could ever believe possible. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing. You're always learning, always learning. It was a very interesting read. Um, but the one that, yeah, Maverick definitely stood out to me. I was like, excellent. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, due to a technical difficulty, we did lose Holly at this point. However, I'm going to continue on with the topic for you guys so that we can finish Mary's story. Mary wrote for a women's magazine called Sybil, which often discussed topics like the power of women's minds and the need for equal opportunity. For a time, she experienced a degree of success as a lecturer and dress reformer in the United States, so much so that when she was asked by members of a social justice congress to be a delegate in September 1866 in Manchester, England, she used it as an opportunity for rest and relaxation. When she arrived in England, Mary found the British public more accepting of her and her unusual attire. In 1871, she published her first book, titled Hit, which included her thoughts on marriage, dress reform, tobacco, temperance, women's franchise, divorce, labour, and religion. In regards to marriage, she said that marriage was a social contract in which men and women should be equal and lifelong partners. She wrote of her belief that women had a God-given right to individuality that would only be realised when the government fully enfranchised women. Although Mary believed in marriage, she also believed people should have the right to a divorce because to be denied a divorce was like being shut up in a prison because someone attempted to kill you. She followed her book Hit with another titled Unmasked or the Science of Immorality, which was published in 1878. Unmasked was her Treatise on Ethics and Sex for Men, in which she included her thoughts on a variety of topics considered taboo, from folk medicine to kissing and venereal disease. Mary was a member of the Central Women's Suffrage Bureau in Washington, and solicited funds to endow a chair for a woman professor at Howard University Medical School. She participated for several years with other leaders in the women's suffrage movement, including Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Candy Stanton. The initial stance of the movement taking Mary's lead, was to say that women already had the right to vote and Congress need only enact enabling legislation. She attempted to register to vote in 1871, but was turned away. After a number of fruitless years advocating this position, the movement promoted the adoption of a constitutional amendment. 
This was diametrically opposed to her position, and she fell out of favour with the movement. She continued to attend suffrage conventions and distribute her own literature, but was virtually ignored by the rest of the movement. In 1907, Mary published Crowning Constitutional Argument, in which she argued that some states, as well as the federal constitution, had already granted women the right to vote. She testified on women's suffrage before committees of the US House of Representatives in 1912 and 1914. In 1917, while in Washington, Mary fell on the Capitol building steps. She was 85 years old at the time, and never fully recovered from the incident. After a long illness, Mary died at home on February 21st, 1919, at the age of 86. By the time of her death, she was left almost penniless. She was buried at Rural Cemetery in Oswego, New York, in a plain funeral casket with an American flag draped over it. She wore a black suit instead of a dress. Her death in 1919 came one year before the passage of the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which guaranteed women the right to vote. Thank you everyone for taking the time to join us for this episode. Unfortunately, Holly isn't here to promote their work, but hopefully I can give it a go for them. Holly is the editor of the Cosplay Journal, a coffee table magazine focusing on the diversity and craft of cosplay. The magazine is currently available on Amazon, with two issues having been released so far, so please go check it out and give it your support. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us on social media. We have a Twitter account, which is at eccentric underscore earth. Our Instagram handle is the same. And we're on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash eccentric earth. If you want to write in to us with suggestions for future episodes, give us any feedback or ask any questions, our email address is eccentricearth at outlook.com. You can find the show on all major podcast providers and on YouTube, so please make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you enjoy it, please leave us a review. We're also now part of the Brit Pod Scene Podcast Network, which is full of great shows and creators to check out, so please go give them a look and see if you find anything on there that tickles your fancy. Well, once again, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you, Holly, for joining me, and we will catch you next episode. Uh-huh.